Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. As we begin in chapter 2 today, many years ago, before I was in the ministry, uh, my wife and I and our children attended a church who was in an, an unusual situation. Across the street from the church were multi-million dollar homes, one of the wealthiest communities in our town and in Dallas County. Uh, but right across the street were some of the poorest apartments in our community. And around the backside of our church were some of the, the poorer middle class homes in our community. So we found ourselves in an interesting situation. How are we going to communicate effectively to those in the multi-million dollar homes as well as those living in some of the poorer apartments in our community? And this was where we found ourselves in this diverse situation and community where God had placed us. And what really struck me as interesting about this church is we had a particular lady that began visiting our church. I do not know why she began visiting our church, but she lived in probably the largest home in the affluent area. You could sit on, a, on the hill where our church was, look across the hill, and there was her house, her mansion sitting there for everyone to see. But for some reason or other, she decided to begin coming to our church. And the ladies in our church went out of their way to accommodate her. Uh, they, they had coffee with her. They'd go out and have, have a visit with her. They would go walking with her. They just really embraced her into our church. And she was a wonderful lady, and she was a good addition to our church. But they went out of the way for her. The thing that struck me as strange is that she was the only one that ever visited us from the affluent area. But we had numerous visitors from the, the lower socioeconomic scale, and they never went out of the way to welcome them. They never went out of the way to, to have coffee with them or go shopping with them or to just go walking with them. And that led me to realize how we as churches oftentimes show favoritism. I don't think we mean to, but we show favoritism. And the fact of the matter is it happens in every church. Every church shows favoritism in different ways. That's what James addresses in our passage for this morning in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. If you've been with me these last several weeks, we've been going through the book of James. I've entitled this series Practical Christianity. It's the nuts and bolts of Christian life. If you want to know how to live the Christian life, the book of James was written for you. It's kind of your roadmap. It's kind of your manual to kind of flesh this thing out that we call Christianity in real life terms. So let's look at James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 under the heading, the importance, importance, blah, 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 blah. the importance of avoiding favoritism. Look at what James says. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? 
Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are stand, slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first thing we can glean from this passage is that favoritism is inconsistent with faith in Christ. Favoritism is inconsistent with faith in Christ. James goes straight to the heart of the matter. He says, don't show favoritism. We ought to be able to close our Bibles right there and get the point, right? But, but we're hard-headed, we're stubborn, we don't get it. So, and besides that, you pay me to preach, so I'm going to go ahead and expound this a little bit more, all right? Uh, don't show favoritism. He goes right to, to the point. The word favoritism in the original languages means to, to receiving the face, receiving the face of someone. So James says, don't receive the face of one over the face of another. He's obviously pointing out our, our idea of looking at people and evaluating them based upon the way they look, perhaps the way they're dressed, based upon the color of their skin, based upon on certain ways they, they may present themselves. We, we are casting judgment on them. We are making judgments and distinctions based upon external considerations. Now, the Old Testament talks about this over and over and over throughout. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15 says this, Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So James is in line with Old Testament teaching, but more important, he's in line with the teaching and the example of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, by his teachings, Jesus, by his actions, never showed favoritism. He never discriminated. He never showed prejudice whatsoever. He never turned away the poor man because he was poor, and he never turned away the wealthy man simply because he was wealthy. He ate with Gentile. He ate with Samaritan. He ate with the, uh, the, the prostitutes. He ate with the poor. He ate with the immoral. He ate with the wicked, as well as he had meals with the religiously uh, righteous. Jesus did all those things. He never showed favoritism. And then in verses 2 through 3, James kind of presents us this hypothetical situation. Matter of fact, I think he exaggerates it to make a point, or perhaps he's pulling a real scenario for them to get it. Uh, notice that he says that two people come into the church services. He doesn't say anything about them. Uh, he doesn't say if they're, they're, they're normal attenders. He doesn't say if they're members. He says two strangers show up. One is obviously wealthy, and the other one is obviously not wealthy. All we know about these men is that they're strangers. So the ushers usher them in, but one usher says, oh, this guy's wealthy. Let's set him in a seat of prominence. Let's give him an important place in the church. The other person's obviously a little poor, uh, poverty-stricken, probably doesn't really have anything to contribute. Let's make them sit at the back. Uh, now, in a Baptist church, that'd be a high, you know, 
put it in the back. That's where everybody says, you know. He said, but, but in the Old Testament days, that wasn't the way it was. Or in the New Testament days, that's what the way it was. He said, you know, put them at the back or sit over in the corner or sit here on the floor. And Jesus, or James says, have you not, when you do that, notice what he says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the way James words it, he words it as a question for you to answer it yourself. Have you not discriminated? Have you not shown favoritism before, over one over the other? He says, that's what we do. And he raises the question for us to answer ourselves. And ultimately what James says is the reason we show favoritism is because we have an improper relationship with God. Instead of looking at the heart or looking at what's inside the person, looking at the potential within the person, we judge a person based upon his external appearance. We base it upon skin color, dress, looks. We base it upon those things. I remember years ago I read a story about a balloon salesman in New York City, uh, and he would uh, sell balloons. And whenever his business would go slow, he'd release a balloon into the air. And after he released the balloon in the air, people would gather around, and they would ooh and ah, and then he'd sell more balloons. After time went by, he released a white balloon into the air. People came and ooh and ah, and they bought balloons. A little bit later, he released a red balloon into the air. And people oohed and awed and bought balloons. A little bit later, he releases a yellow balloon in the air. And, and the people come and they stand, they ooh and they ah, and they buy balloons. After a little bit of time, a little boy, an African-American boy, comes up to him. And he says, Mister, if you released a black balloon, would it go up in the air? And the man looked down at the little boy. He said, Son, it's not what it's... It's not what the, what's on the outside of the balloon that makes it go up. It's what's on the inside that makes it go up. You see, that's the truth that we need to grasp. It's not the condition of what a person looks like on the outside. It's what's on the inside that's important. And that's what James is trying to get us to understand. But how easy it is for us to slip into the habit of judging people on the basis of externals. We look at an individual who comes across as looking wealthy, looking rich, and we say, oh, they'd be a wonderful addition to our church monetarily. Uh, they would be a blessing to us financially. Or we look at an individual and say, man, they'd be a great leader in the church. Wouldn't they fit, fit in well in our leadership? Or we just look at them and say, you know, they just look like one of us. They just look like that they belong in our, in our group. And we do that all the time. And James is saying when we make choices based upon the external appearance of an individual, we're showing favoritism. We're showing racist, racist qualities. We're showing prejudice. And let's face it, all of us are prone to do it, right? We all are prone to do it. So James's words are applicable to each one of us in this room. We cannot do that. Favoritism is inconsistent with faith in Christ. Second, favoritism is contrary to the purpose of God. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? James is saying, look, God has a totally different way of looking at things than, than we do. Uh, James is saying God has chosen the poor for salvation over 
the wealthy. Now what James is doing, he's tracing salvation back to God. Salvation has always comes from God. It has never comes from man. So he says, God has chosen, God is selecting the poor to be saved. He said, these individuals can be saved. God does not look at people and decide that the wealthy are the only ones to be saved. Instead, he responds differently. He says, when God looks at the poor, they are the ones who are rich in God's eyes. He said, because he looks at them differently. And Jesus was constantly criticized for associating with the poor. He was constantly criticized for associating with the down and outs. Uh, the up and ends wanted him to associate with them. And Jesus said, look, I'm going to mingle with these people. Uh, this is who I'm going to hang around. Why? Because Jesus saw their individual worth, and then he called them to follow me. He said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And God still confronts that. Uh, he, he still confounds the, the judgment attitude that we have in the world today. God says there's none that are too low and none that are too high that they are outside of God's sphere of love. But we look at all the wrong aspects when we look at individuals. We look at a rich person because he has a, a large bank account or probably because he has, has a lot of property. And we say that person has value. That person is important. But who can value a good family? What kind of value do you put on a good reputation? What kind of value do we put on a good work ethic? And just a good person. You see, we have to look at things differently than the world. God calls our attention beyond what the eye can see and look into the heart of an individual. In order to do that, you're going to have to get to know them. You're going to have to get to know them more than just a passing reference to them. God says, James says, the poor have been made rich in faith in Jesus Christ because they're, they're more prone to respond to the gospel. They have become rich, whereas the wealthy have not. And he says, because of that, because of their faith in God, they have something that's more enduring than money. They have something that's more precious than a large house or a big bank account. They have faith that will last for eternity. And whether you know it or not, that's who you're going to be spending eternity with. So my philosophy is you ought to get to know them here so that when you get up there, you won't be meeting a stranger. Uh, You'll get to meet them more and celebrate with them. Christians possess spiritual wealth now, and they anticipate more to come. And so we have to look at things from that, that perspective and not just on what they can offer now, but what is it going to look like in eternity. And so from this spiritual vantage point, uh, is that we should judge people. Look at them spiritually, not economically, not racially, not culturally. Look at them spiritually. James says we should not judge by the standards of the world. Now, let me give a preface here, or, or a parenthetical statement. This is not, James is not giving a generalization here saying that all poor people will be saved. That's not what he's saying. He said many of them will be saved. And my experience of being from serving in Costa Rica, serving in Guatemala, serving in some, some out-of-the-reach places, poor people, uh, people that are not as blessed financially, are easier to reach with the gospel than those who are. Uh, they see their need much more than somebody who's wealthy who already has everything. They don't see their need 
for that. So James is saying, and God is saying, and Jesus says that the poor, many poor people are going to come to Christ. But he's also not saying that the wealthy are excluded. God judges everybody based upon what's in their heart, not based upon their external condition. So don't look at this as just James is saying only poor people will be saved. Many of them are. And because many poor people will be saved, we cannot discriminate. We cannot show favoritism toward one over the other. Third truth, favoritism is not in the best interest of the Christian. James begins to present a hypothetical situation uh, and even if it might be hypothetical to, to make a point, some have been guilty of doing this. It's surprising when we look at the actions of the wealthy. Uh, they're guilty of two wrongs. He talks about this in, in verses uh, uh, 5 to 7. The guilty of two wrongs. First, the guilty or uh, the, the rich are guilty of oppressing the poor economically. From what we know about the first century, there was a group of land barons who owned most of the land, and then there was everybody else who worked for them. And sometimes, the, many times, the wealthy would accuse the poor of stealing from them, and they'd take them to court and, and, and take what they have or put them in indentured servanthood, whatever it was, and they were abusing the people, the wealthy, the wealthy were abusing the poor. This is what we know about the first century. So they were taking advantage of them economically. But not only were they oppressing them economically, they were oppressing the poor spiritually. And maybe the two are connected. You know, in their desire to have more money, they oppressed them. Or it could just be they hated Christians. Because here's the truth of the matter. We're talking about a, time, a place that was steeped in Judaism. Christianity was considered a sect. It was a cult, and it was not accepted by the majority of Jewish people. And so here you had these rich landowners who said, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. We saw, we heard, we didn't see this in Mexico, but we heard about it from missionary friends in, in Mexico. They went into a community to start, start they were the only, only church planters in the community. And they went there, and they were going to do a, an evangelistic rally on the public square. You know, they're going to do it on a Saturday, and they were going to do an evangelistic rally to bring people that. The mayor of the city heard about it. The mayor was a staunch Catholic. The Catholic priest went to the mayor and said, you can't allow that, and they wouldn't allow them to do it because they weren't Catholic. So what my friend did is my friend wound up going to the bars that were closed on Sunday mornings, and he held church services on bars in Sunday mornings. Uh, I mean, they were closed. Why not use them? But it was similar the same way because they were evangelicals, not Catholics. The church there has so much control over that city that it limited their ability to share the gospel. So here's what we see going on. Ancient Judaism said, we'll show these people. We'll treat them badly and maybe they will repent and come back into the church, so to speak. So they were abusing them because of their hatred for Christianity. And James says, look, these are the people you're bending over backwards to welcome into your church. These are the people that you're doing whatever they want uh, to get them in the church, and they're the ones that are making fun of you. They're the ones that are mocking you. They're the ones that are oppressing you. He says, this does not make sense. This is not in your best interest to do this. He says, since they are showing such contempt for you, 
You have no excuse to show favoritism to them. The believers were showing favoritism to the wealthy that could care less about them or the God they served. They were in it for their own desires. They were in it for their own benefit. They were ignoring uh, the heart attitudes. The church was ignoring the heart attitudes in favor, favor of existential things, things that didn't matter. Listen, we do it. I know of people that will go to a church and they will go to a particular church because it'll be good for their portfolio. It'll be good because I might make contacts that will help my business. Uh, I can go to this church because there might be people here that can help me in my, my field. Insurance, I'm not, down, I'm not downing insurance people, okay? Insurance people are bad about this. I've been in two churches and an insurance agent joins the church and within two weeks he's in my office. office I'm sorry, Mitch, <laughs> brother. He's in my office and he's asking, and he's asking, he said, do you have anybody in your church that needs insurance? I said, I said they need fire insurance, I'm sure. Uh, I, said, I said, I'm sure there's some people need, need insurance and I'm not giving you access to them. I said, that's not what you're here to do. Uh, and I'm not picking on insurance. Bankers are bad about it too, okay? Uh, the point is, a lot of people will join churches for how it's going to benefit them in the world. But listen, let's don't be so hard on them. We do it. We do it in churches. And in a couple of different churches I pastored, I'm glad it wasn't the same church. That might have told me something about them. But in one church where I pastored, we had a very wealthy family come to our church. I did not know them. You know, I shook their hand. That's all I knew about them. Uh, and, and somebody, they came after the church service was over, they left, and a bunch of people huddled around me up front and said, Pastor, Pastor, do you know who that was? I said, no. They said, they said, they're one of the wealthiest people in our community. You have got to track them down. They'd be a great benefit to our church. You know. And another church I went to that I was pastoring, we had an individual, we had a family that was a very prominent family in our church, good workers, good contributors, and they decided they were going to leave the church for whatever reason. Did you know that sometimes people leave churches? Did you know that? I, I, you know, at least they leave one church and go down to, go down to the other church. You know. So they leave. For whatever reason, they chose to leave. And the people began coming up to me, and they, this is what they said. Pastor, we sure are losing a good family. And, of course, me, you know, I, I don't have a lot of tact. So I just popped off and said, I thought we were all good families. But you see what we're doing? We valued them based upon their financial contribution to the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I want everybody to financially contribute, but I don't care if you give $100 or $10. As long as you're giving to the Lord, that's what matters. But we have a tendency to look at the externals and what they can contribute instead of looking at the heart as God would have us do so. So we have to be careful. James says, He's not saying that the, the rich should be avoided. Uh, and y'all have heard me preach enough to say that I want God to bless you financially. I want Him to bless you financially so that you can bless the church. Because the more money you make, the more money we can use for kingdom work. So I, I don't have any problem with you making money. As long as you're not sacrificing what's God's and, and keeping it for yourself. One final truth, we'll move on. Favoritism is a violation of the royal law. We see this in verses 8 through 13. He gives us a powerful, uh, cohesive argument against all forms of favoritism. He said Christians will be judged by one thing. How do we love all people? 
He draws it back to what he calls the royal law. The royal law was taught in the Old Testament. It was taught by Jesus. It's now being taught by James and all the other disciples. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said that is the guide for all Christian action. How are we loving our neighbors? God has commanded us to love one another. God has commanded us to love our neighbor. That was commanded in the Old Testament. It's commanded by Jesus. It's commanded by all the disciples. And as difficult as it may be for us to, to, to keep, God expects us to act out of love. Not half-hearted, uh, not simplistic, but, but it's not to be directed to some and withheld from others. God's commanded it. You know, some will say, well, I don't think showing favoritism is that big of a deal. You know, because there's, there's other commandments that we ought, to, we ought to give precedence to. And favoritism is just one of many. So James breaks down that argument. He says, okay, let's look at it this way. Let's suppose, I, you know, you come to me and say, boy, I really like your wife. But I want you to know, I'm not going to have an affair with her. I'm not going to commit adultery with your wife. I said, oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. He said, however, if you mistreat her, I'll kill you. Well, okay, you're not going to commit adultery, but you're going to kill me. James, that's what James says. He says, you know, so James says, listen, if you kill him, you've still broken the law. It doesn't matter. Why well, didn't do adultery? Yeah, but you killed him. So James is arguing the absurd. He says, so we sit there and say, well, I love this side of the church. I don't really like this side very much. He says, you've broken the whole law. That's what James is saying. He said, you can't pick and choose the ones you will keep and the ones you will support, the ones that you will, you will honor and the ones you will dishonor. He says, the minute you dishonor one part of the law, guess what? You dishonor all the law. Aren't you glad we're saved by grace? I don't know about y'all. Do y'all check them off every day, the ones you break? Every day. You don't do that, Nancy? I check, every day I broke the... Okay, there's... Okay. And at the end of the day, I said, Lord, thank you that I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. Because all my works are like filthy rags before God. But he says, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Christ, we do our best to honor him by the way we live our life and the way we love one another. He said, we do our best. And at the end of the day, my friends, listen, at the end of the day, when you've slipped up, and you will, you will, when you slip up, go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I didn't love the people like I should have. God, I didn't love my neighbor like I should have. And you know what God will say? I love you, my child. Do better tomorrow. Do better tomorrow. Because my grace covers a multitude of sins. A multitude. And remember, remember this, I always tell you this. Every sin you've ever committed was in the future when Jesus died on the cross. So don't think that only God can forgive you for the sins you did in the past, but he can't forgive you for the ones you did in the future. Every sin was in the future when Jesus died on the cross. He can forgive you for your sins yesterday. He can forgive you for your sins today. And he can forgive you for your sins tomorrow. But don't live your life controlled by your sin. This is what he's trying to say. And when we show favoritism, when we are, are discriminate, when we are prejudiced, guess what? We are allowing the very nature of love one another to fall by the wayside.
What was the two greatest commandments that Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And what's the second? He said to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? He tells us in the Good Samaritan. So what do we do with these words? James says, the minute you begin to show favoritism, you nullify your witness. You're no longer an effective witness for the kingdom of God. We ought to strive to show our neighbor love. Jesus showed no favoritism, and his death was for everyone who will believe in him. And he said, because my, for my, because my death is for all who will believe, we are to be ambassadors of that mission. We are to be ambassadors of love for Jesus Christ. And we are to communicate with all those around. Now, I'm going to make a confession. I sometimes show favoritism. I show favoritism to the lost over the saved. I think I'm in good company because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, I don't worry about your salvation if you know Jesus. I'm not worried about it. But I am worried about those who do not know Jesus. How about you? Do you love them? Do you love them enough to communicate the gospel to them? Do you love them enough, regardless of their color, uh, their background, their economic situation, or whether they have tattoos on their face or they look like they put their face in a fish tackle box? Uh, you know what I mean? Do you love them? And can you look at that person and say, that's a person that Jesus died for? Because until you can say that, guess what? Jesus said, you've broken the law. And you're showing favoritism. What did James say? Underline it, circle it. Don't show favoritism. End of sermon. What are you going to do with these words today? I can't tell you how to apply them. I can't tell you what you can do, but God can.